please remain standing. Others have said it, but I'm going to say it my way. I'm, I'm really encouraged that we continue to gather together, whether in person or with the aid of technology. Uh, here we are together, particularly in these uncertain times. Scripture, or God's word, is effective in grounding us and keeping our vision clear. Standing, by the way, is a good way to affirm the importance of Scripture, and it also helps us to actively listen. I'm going to read from Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and beginning at verse 17. One day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, but they couldn't. They couldn't find a way in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and lowered him on a mat through the tiles into the middle of the room, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed, and they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we've seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. can be seated. Um, Chris, thanks for reading. I, uh, I think I would be such a better teacher if I sounded like you. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. Um, but thank you. I, uh, I love this passage that we're, we're getting to explore and dive in today. Um, welcome. You're here. You made it. You lost an hour of sleep. You're online. You made it. You lost an hour of sleep, but maybe not. You're just tuning in, so. Uh, but it's good to be together. My name's Adam, um, one of the teachers here at Mosaic, and um, I want to step into this, this passage that we just read out of Luke chapter 5 with you for the next few moments. And uh, just, just as a recap and to remind you, we're, we're walking slowly through the book of Luke, and the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which we'll go into next, 
are written um, by a person to someone named Theophilus. And the purpose of these books is to make clear who Jesus is, his stories, his teaching, his miracles, his relationships, to make clear who Jesus is to this reader, Theophilus, so that they can know for themselves that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior. And so it's pointing over and over again to who Jesus is, what identity we can find in him and the identity that he has shown to us. And at the time that this is written and Theophilus is receiving this, um, he's in a moment where there's chaos, there's turmoil, there's life circumstances that are happening. And as we're opening the book of Luke here in March in 2022, we can say some of those things are similar and true for us. Global impacts, big challenges over the past few years that have led many of us even into big questions and wonderings and even trials and wrestling with faith. And yet, Jesus is faithfully meeting us week after week through the words that we're reading in the book of Luke. And so today, we're going we're gonna to step into this story that we just heard Chris read. And my invitation for you is, is simply this, to be fully present and to ask this question, what does this story identify about who Jesus is? Allow space in your mind, in your heart, for that response to grow today to see Jesus with clearer eyes, with deeper expectation, with a greater faith of who Jesus is? And then secondly, what does this passage say about our own identity? For you and I, as we follow Jesus, what does this passage do? How does it challenge us? How does it shape us to become more like Jesus? So if you have a Bible um, or a Bible app, turn to Luke chapter 5. We're going to walk through this story. And as you're turning there, I'll just give you briefly a little context uh, for the story. Um, last week, we got to hear an amazing miracle of Jesus healing um, a person with leprosy. It's, it's, it's just a brilliant and amazing thing that Jesus does. And at the end of that passage, it says that, that he often would go away to lonely places to be with his father and to pray. And then the, the next verse picks up with this story of Jesus teaching in a house. And I think that that's, it's somewhat significant that it's in a house. We, we have accounts of Jesus teaching in different places, uh, in the synagogue, on a hillside, and, and in different environments. But in the book of Luke, and, and next in the book of Acts, when we get there, we'll see that there's something significant about what happens in our houses, the places that God has placed us to live. And this story happens in a house. Jesus has been teaching, and, and his, his notoriety uh, is becoming more known. People are, are discovering him. People are wanting to hear his teaching. They're hearing the stories about him. And this is a story of him teaching. And it starts in verse 17. It says this. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So the story starts with, with Jesus teaching, and, and his notoriety has hit a point where, where the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, and this group called Pharisees that were actually just being introduced to uh, for the first time in the book of Luke, they're there at this house. They've come from surrounding villages because they want to examine Jesus' teaching. They want to hear from this person. And as I've been going through this story uh, this, this past week and, and uh, thinking through just 
what this story, uh, the, the story it tells in my mind and imagining it, a few things have struck me uh, that, that maybe haven't in the past. One is that, that these people, these teachers of the law and these Pharisees are coming to this house to see Jesus, who's a relatively young man. I don't know that I always had that perspective, but now looking at his age of being 30, that, that he's this relatively young man who's teaching with authority and teaching about this kingdom. And so the Pharisees have come and, and, and they're wanting to examine his teaching. They're wanting to critique his teaching. See, the Pharisees represented a mindset that was, was looking at the past for connection with God. Their mindset, their mantra is that if we can recreate and reestablish what was the old law, the old code of ethics that they had, the, the Old Testament, the first five books, they, they, they paint this story of, of, of how God is going to interact with his people and what sanctification and purification is going to look like. And there's this entire code of conduct that they live by called the Old Testament law. The Pharisees' primary goal is to recreate that establishment. That if they can create just the right conditions, then God will act on their behalf. So Pharisee, the, the, the name actually, the term actually means separate. People who are, who are set apart, separate ones. And their desire and belief is, in, is that their God-given duty is to bring about this revolution of recreating what was for this nation of Israel. Then we hear the teaching of Jesus, that he has come to all people, to every tongue, to every tribe, that he has come preaching this gospel of relationship with God through belief in him. You can see where there's some conflict, right? They're sitting in this house, they're crammed in, they're listening to his teaching, and there's critique that is happening. And then this story takes an amazing turn. It starts in, in uh, verse 18, it goes and says this. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and try to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him in on a mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. What an amazing thing to imagine in our minds, right? What an amazing story. So we're introduced to the Pharisees. Then the next characters who are coming into this story is this paralyzed man who is being carried by his friends. Now in my mind, as I, as I think about this story, I think probably there's at least four of these friends because they're, they're carrying him and they, there's enough of them to actually lower him through a roof. And, and they arrive at this scene. And, and what we know about these friends is not much, but what we know is that they love this par paralyzed man that they deeply care for them, that they're allowing their lives to be interrupted to help this paralyzed man. They, they love this man, and we know that they believe something unique and special about Jesus. I mean, in their minds, if they can just get their friend to Jesus, Jesus will know what to do. And so they arrive at this house carrying the mat that their paralyzed friend is lying on, and when they arise, arrive to the house, it's packed. There's no space for them to actually go into the house because it's full of who? Religious leaders and Sadducees. There's people here who are critiquing Jesus, who have filled up the space and are displacing the people who believe in the power of Jesus and want to be with him. This amazing story of them showing up and being turned away 
And this is how the story goes in my mind, that they go, they're carrying the mat, they're, they're, they're turned away because it's so full and, and they're not willing to make space for them, they're not willing to be accommodating, so they're, they're turning away maybe in dismay, maybe in, in, in sadness, and there's, there's the one guy, right? Maybe you have a friend like this, I have a friend like this. There's the one person who's like, guys, wait, I got an idea. Stick with me, hold on now, what if we climb up to the roof we take our paralyzed friend, we tear apart the roof, and we lower him in at the feet of Jesus. That's a bold thing. And I, I've got a friend like that who, who, when the door is closed, when the answer is no, when the party is full, when we can't go, he finds a way by pushing and pushing. And in this moment, we see that these people are deeply, deeply motivated by love for their friend and belief in who Jesus is. So the story tells us that they, they take this mat that this paralyzed man is laying on and they take him to the roof and they begin to disassemble and to tear apart the roof. Now when we read it, it reads very clean. It says that they remove some tiles. And, and we might think, oh, there, there's a tile here and there's a tile here. We can put those right back when we're done. Simple, we're gonna move these tiles, we're gonna lower him in. But, but in actuality, what the construction would have looked like, it would have not been very simple to open up this roof. It actually would have required destroying a part of the roof. And it would have been chaotic, and it would have been messy. If we were in that space, if we were there listening to Jesus, we would hear ruckus on the roof. And then suddenly we would see debris starting to fall. We would be wondering what in the world is happening. The scene that's created is far more like, like a frat party than a Bible study. They're tearing the roof off this place to lower their friend to be with Jesus. I love their boldness. This might not go well for them. <laughs> They're breaking the law to make sure that their friend can be with Jesus. Their faith, their belief in who Jesus is and their love for their friend has caused them to step out in faith and to risk. So they, they do just that. They go to the roof, they begin to tear it apart, and they lower their friend. This is kind of the moment of truth, right? What's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to say? I'm, I'm assuming, based on the fact that they, they couldn't even get into this room, that their station in life is probably below the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and so they're interrupting people who, who societally are, are kind of above them. They're making this massive risk. What is Jesus going to do? What's going to happen? Are they all going to end up in jail and their friend is not going to be helped? How is this going to go? And listen to these words in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, friends, your sins are forgiven. How beautiful for them to get to hear those words, being stared at by all of these religious leaders, by all these people who probably would have just passed by them, who are all there listening to Jesus, and Jesus stops what he's doing. He looks, he sees their faith, their belief in who he is, and he responds with relationship and says, friends. There's this, uh, this moment, this scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies, the last one. I, I love the Lord of the Rings movies, but I'm not a look a Lord of the Rings geek, so if you ask me about all the details in the books, I won't know, but I really, really, really love 
the movies. And there's this scene at the end of the last one that I just watched recently with one of my kids where, where um, all of the battles have won, all the good guys win, and the bad guys lose. If you've not seen it, I just spoiled it for you. Uh, but, but central to this story are these, these four hobbits. And, and they're, they're kind of in a place in society where they're of, of little consequence. Everyone's always doubting what they can do um, because of their physical stature and, and, and kind of being dismissive of them. And yet, throughout the entire thread of the story, they're, they're kind of the heroes. They're kind of the ones who make it happen. And, and at the end, there's this beautiful, beautiful scene where the king is, is getting ready to be married to an elf lady. It's, it's awesome. And there's all of these people there, and there's this amazing scene where they're all getting ready to bow for the king. And the, the king stops, and he says, no, my friends, to these four hobbits. And he bows before them, and everyone in attendance bows before these four unassuming, minor role, on the sidelines of the story kind of people. When I read this, that was the scene that popped into my mind. These people who have taken this massive risk for their friend that they love. And Jesus' response isn't just to say, okay, you guys can come in. His response isn't to even say, oh, I, I think I can help you and I want to help you. His response is to offer himself in relationship. And he calls them friends. Man, I, I read that one verse this week over and over and over because that's something I want more and more of. Man, I, I want to know and to understand and to believe that Jesus looks at me and he looks at you and he sees our faith. And we're not just, we're not just part of something. We're not just uh, uh, members of a community, but, but we're known by him and he calls us friends. This is something in my life that, 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 that I've had to really wrestle with, that I've really struggled to believe. It's easier for me to see myself as Jesus' servant, his, his helper, uh, the, the, the person who does things for him, but to see myself as his friend, not because I've earned it, not because I've attained it, but because it's how he feels about me, and it's how he feels about you. And it's the moment where their faith is re rewarded. And he calls them friends. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. I see your faith. I see your belief. And I'm going I'm to heal your friend. But before we do that, I want you to know I'm going to heal your heart. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to put you in right standings with the God of the universe. What an amazing moment for them to walk away not just with their friend healed, but to walk away with an identity that their friends with the son of the God of the universe. And because of that friendship, they are now made right with God. It's awesome for them. It's about to be really awesome for their friend that they just lowered in. It's not so awesome for the religious teachers and the Pharisees. They're actually struggling quite a bit. They're actually pretty offended by what Jesus just said. Because in their mindset, in their code, and, and, and how they understand connectivity with God, 
There's a whole process of your sins being forgiven. It requires a priest. It requires sacrifice of animals. And it requires all of these steps of purification and, and this temple that needs to be reconstructed. There's, there's these things that need to happen. You can't just say your sins are forgiven. Only God can say that. So they're frustrated. And it says this in 21. The Pharisees... And the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? This word blasphemy is lies, it's profanity about holy things. This is a heavy allegation that they're leveling about Jesus. He's speaking lies about holy things. He's profaning the name of God. Who can do this but God alone? Jesus knew that they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. This divine appointment has been orchestrated by God to reveal to these people who his Son is really is that he's not just a teacher he's not just a prophet that he has been given authority from god to heal to raise the dead and to forgive sins this amazing moment that god has orchestrated that the proof the evidence they need to see as he is teaching in this house the evidence that they need to see is about to tear a hole in the roof and lower right before me so that I can show you because I want you to know that I am the Son of God. He uses this, this phrase in verse 24, and you might have noticed that this phrase, Son of Man, is actually capitalized in 24. And when we see that in Scripture, we know it's not just a phrase. It's actually a title. It's referencing something. And, and Jesus is using this very intentionally, and he's connecting himself to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. This is a prophecy that Daniel had written centuries before this moment, and Jesus is connecting this for these religious leaders. And, and the prophecy says this, this is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with a cloud of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His domain is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus tells these leaders of the law, I am that person. I am that one you have been waiting for. I am that one whose dominion, whose kingdom will not pass, who's been given authority and then he says is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to tell this paralyzed man stand up and walk but that you will know I have authority to forgive sins let me show you what I can do and he does in this moment in this paralyzed person's body personifies what he's come to do for the heart. He mends. 
He's taken what is broken. He puts back together. He restores. He renews. He brings life and vitality and joy. It says in 25, immediately, the paralyzed man, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I love this story. And I love all of these people that we're introduced to in this story and these roles. And, and as we open scripture, I'm reminded, and Chris, I love what you said about scripture, that, that, that no scripture is wasted. When we open this book, it speaks to us, it shapes us. As we think about the people in this story, we learn, we can see ourselves aligned with some of what they struggle with, some of how they're growing. It speaks to us. This first group, the, the, the Pharisees, the people who, whose mindset is to restore a physical kingdom, and, and because they're so fixated on that, they're missing this new kingdom that's actually developing right in front of their eyes with power and with strength. As I was reading through this story, my, my knee-jerk as I read about the Pharisees oftentimes is to think about them as the antagonists in the New Testament, right? That, that might not always be totally fair, that, that, but kind of we think about books that we read. There's protagonists, there's the good guy, and then there's the bad guy. And, and I can oftentimes think about them in that light. Uh, in fact, a, a few weeks ago, we, we read about um, John the Baptist's sermon, and he calls them a brood of vipers, so I might not be alone in that. But, but in this moment, I, I, I was reading and, and, and just realized that, that they've actually been given a gift in this story. The space was made for them in this house to hear Jesus, to see this miracle. And he says, I want you to know. My heart and my desire is that you would know. And I've arranged this beautiful story to happen in front of you so that you will know and that you will see and that revival can come to your homes. These teachers of the law who have made an idol out of their past and are missing what God is calling them into. That they're invited into revival. As I think about you and I and, and sometimes the trappings of what it means to, to engage in religion, the trappings of sometimes what it means even at times to be involved in church and, and how at times we can busy ourselves with very peripheral things. We can sometimes busy ourselves with, with outside motivations and, and our, our, our political persuasions and the way that, that we want to see the world change because if it's made to be like this, then things will be right and things will be better and, and, and we can run the risk of setting our eyes on those things and miss what Jesus is doing. There's an awesome story about a man who would have uh, looked a lot like the, the, the people in this, this home. He was a a religious teacher. He was an expert, in fact, at a religious teacher, a high-ranking religious teacher, and his name was Saul. And God went after him, and, and instead of displaying his power by healing him, he actually displayed his power by maiming him. He took his sight for a time to get his attention. And Saul has this amazing conversion story. He is a teacher of the law. He's actually pursuing 
and attacking the church of Jesus, and he's wreaking havoc, and, and, and Jesus comes after him and, and takes his side and calls him, and he has this great conversion story and becomes uh, crucial for leading the New Testament church, and this is his testimony. This is out of Galatians chapter 2. This is what this religious leader of the law, when he pivoted to Jesus, this is what he says. 2.16, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Then in 20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, what a, what a change of perspective of bringing about this code of conduct that will somehow get God's attention. Instead, he realizes, Jesus has reached to me. He loved me and gave himself to me. You know, I do not set aside the grace of God, for its righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. The question for the Pharisee, the question for you and I, is simply this. Is our identity coming from the religious trappings and the per peripheral uh, motivations that come with all of that, or is it coming solely from Jesus? That's what they're invited into, is they're in this house to see who Jesus is, to know that he has power to save. They're invited into this renewal. The second group, of course, is, is the friends. And they're kind of, other than Jesus, right, they're, they're kind of the all-stars of this story. These men who were unwilling to let their friends stay in this condition went to, to, to bring them to Jesus. They're told no, they're turned away. They tear the roof off the place, lower him before Jesus. We are called to that action as well. 2 Corinthians 5 says that if we are in Christ, we're a new creation and when that happens, we become ambassadors of Jesus. Instead of bringing people to Jesus, we take Jesus everywhere we go. Motivated by our faith and love for people as these friends. I came across this quote uh, by a famous preacher who's, who's, who's long dead named Spurgeon. Uh, and it's written about these, these friends and about what they are called to. And when we step into this work, that we're called to the same thing. It says, they need be strong for the burden is heavy. They need be resolute, for the work will try their faith. They need to be prayerful, for otherwise they labor in vain. They must be believing, or they'll be utterly useless. As I read about these, these men carrying their paralyzed friend, I can't help but ask myself this question. Who am I, who in my world Am I bringing Jesus to? Who in my world, like this paralyzed friends, needs the touch of the Son of Man, needs the power and the authority of Jesus to be made right, to be made whole, to be forgiven? And like these, these men, am I willing to risk to put myself in a position that is, that is difficult, that is scary, that might not go well? I know that that was the case for them. This story could have ended up with 
and then there was five people in jail. <laughs> this story could have ended up a lot of different ways, but yet they were willing to risk based on their love for their friend and their belief in who Jesus is. Their faith challenges me. It leads me to that question, who in my world do I love? Who in my world, because of my belief in Jesus, I'm willing to risk a conversation. I'm willing to risk getting up Tuesdays at 7 and praying for them over and over. I'm willing to risk a hard conversation to stepping into their world. I'm willing to risk even an invitation to them. These friends are very inspiring and challenging. So the story has is, is given us a, a picture of Jesus. It's given us a picture of, of the religious leaders, of his friends, and then last, of the paralyzed man. We get to see the day that his life was radically, radically changed. To meet with Jesus, to have his body mended, but even more, to have his heart mended, to be made right before God, and to be called friends. Man, if we are people who have come to Jesus, in some ways all of us have experienced to some degree what, what renewal this paralyzed person has experienced. To know that we are invited into that same relationship, that Jesus meets us with power to heal our physical bodies and to heal our hearts and to put us into alignment with the God of the universe. This beautiful story that I could read over and over as I sit with this, I, I also acknowledge and understand in this, this moment where we're going through Luke and, and we're kind of in this concentrated moment of Jesus just doing miracle after miracle and, and healing bodies and, and, and putting bodies back. And there are many of us who would say, I, I'm waiting for that miracle. And there, there are many of us, maybe probably all of us, who are saying, I'm, I'm waiting for Jesus to do this thing in my life. I mean, I'm bringing my faith to this. I mean, I, I'm desperate for Jesus to meet me in this place. We're invited to come to him over and over. And to know that ultimately, whether in this life or in a future life, everything gets made right. That's what Revelation 21 tells us. That everything gets placed right. Everything is healed. Everything is set as it should be. And in the waiting, we're invited into the worship of Jesus and into the remembrance of him, the Son of God, who has come in power to heal and to save on a mission that ultimately ended on the cross until he was resurrected by the power and the Holy Spirit and now has given us access and granted us access with God. Week after week, we, we, we take communion in this space and across the metro in our homes, and we have these elements that, that actually tell that story. We have the bread that represents his body. We have the juice that represents his blood. And it's these elements that we take, not because it's Sunday, not because it's, it's a ritual, because it points to our faithful response to who Jesus is. When he says, I am the Son of God, I have the authority to heal, I have the authority to forgive, we take communion and we say yes and amen and we believe. This represents this Jesus 
who doesn't know us from afar, but calls us close and calls us his friends. So this morning, I want to lead us in taking communion. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, let's, let's take communion together. Jesus, thank you for this story. Thanks that you orchestrated it. Thanks that you love everyone in this story, and you love us, and you demonstrate your power, that we would know you, that we would have our faith set on you, that you would call us friends. We hold these elements to represent the extent of which your friendship goes, even to death on the cross, to reconcile us. So we take these elements. We love you and we worship you. Amen.